Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges. Internal communication is a crucial function that helps organisations achieve lasting change. This podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work. Every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity. We really hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the next edition of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Dominic Walters and I'm joined by my usual hosts, Kat Barnard and and Jennifer Sproul. And today we're looking at that huge topic of organisational culture. It's a a massive topic and it's a good job we've got someone great to help us steer our way through it. We're joined by Scott McInnes. I'll pass over to Scott to introduce himself in a moment. But Scott and I actually worked together back at Allied Irish Bank a few years ago. It was a great privilege to do that. Scott has has done a lot of work around organisational culture, has a great background in internal communication, and also is the host of a very successful podcast as well. But Scott, you can probably introduce introduce yourself far better, so I'll pass over to you to do that. Lovely to have you all here, and lovely to be here. It's funny being on this side of the table for a change. It's actually terrifying, uh, not really knowing what, you're, what questions you're going to be lobbing at me. But look, it means I get to understand it a little bit about what my own guests go through on my podcast. So as you said, uh, my name is indeed Scott McInnes. I run an organization called Inspiring Change. We are a Dublin-based consultancy that focuses very much on organizational culture change and internal comms and engagement. And that's all we do. And I don't apologize for that because I don't want, I've never wanted to be a, you know, a doing everything for everybody, you know, jack of all trades and master of none. So we focus very much on those two areas. So we've worked with all sorts of clients on things like values, on things like purpose, on things like corporate narrative development, on things like internal comms, strategy creation, and worked for brands like VHI, who would be Ireland's equivalent, I guess, of Bupa. We've worked recent, very recently with the Football Association of Ireland, who, for those of you that follow football, will know that they've had a very um, traumatic very recent history so there was lots to fix there the likes of the department of transport so a real a real mix of clients and i think what i love about what we do and i think this is the same for for internal comms pros generally is that we have a toolkit or a bag of stuff that we can bring to any client in any sector and we can always help so that's what we do i've been running this since 2017 since indeed i left aib where, where you and i as you said Dom, works together back in the day so that's me thank you scott well Let's start with talking about organisational culture. Like we said, it's a very broad subject, and I'm sure it will cover all of the things you've just mentioned. But in your work, both since 2017 and I guess before, working with organisations, helping them develop their structures and develop their culture. Firstly, I guess the question is, what characterises a better culture, a good culture? And I guess, conversely, what also characterises a less good culture? It would be great. You mentioned a number of the organisations you work with. It would be great if you could draw upon that to give us a few examples, perhaps both or at least the characteristics. So I guess, yeah, what's a good culture? What's a bad culture? And what examples do you have? So I think it's probably worthwhile taking taking a half a step back, maybe, first of all, to think about what is culture? Because I suspect that if I asked the four of us or 100 people, 
what is organizational culture, we'd have four, in this case, or 100 different answers. So I picked out a couple of versions that I quite like. Organizational culture is the sum of the values and rituals which serve as the glue to integrate members of your organization. So what do we stand for as an organization? And then a combination of visible and invisible elements that make up the personality of the organization. And it was Ed Shine, the godfather, I guess, of organizational culture back in the 90s, who coined much of that work and did much of that work around the visible and invisible elements of culture. And he likened it very much in a video that I can send you a link to if you want to stick it in the show notes. He linked organizational culture very much to a lily pond. And he said, there are, you know, you can see the lily pads, you can see the flowers, but actually, when you look beneath the water, where all the structure is, where the roots are, where the stems of those flowers are, actually, that's where the real action happens. So I think probably using that as a scene set, then we get on to, well, what is a better culture? Well, actually, we don't necessarily believe there are good or bad cultures. What we believe is that for a culture to be really effective, it needs to be clear and it needs to be aligned. It needs to be very deliberate because every single organization, regardless of whether it's work or a social organization or scouts or a football team or whatever it is, has a culture. We all have them. Every organization has one, but it's just whether or not you've just left that to grow and change and morph organically or whether you're being very, very deliberate about it. So those organizations with clear and aligned cultures, what they're doing is they're being very, very deliberate about the culture they need. And this is the important bit to achieve their business strategy, their goals and objectives. So culture is the flip side of the coin, strategy. That whole, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I know it's been said a gazillion times, but it's so true. You can have the best strategy in the world, but if your culture, the culture in the organization folds its arms and says, not on my watch, then it's just not going to happen. So the two are symbiotic. You need one to drive the other. And of course, for that to happen, you need to make sure that your people understand it. Now, to your question about, you know, a couple of examples, let's pick a couple of examples. Look, There are hundreds of examples out there. The couple that I'm going to cite, you know, people might say, well, I'd hate to work there because of X. Other people would say, I'd love to work there because of X. Culture is very, very subjective. What works for one person in one group won't work for somebody else in another group. But people like HubSpot, you know, HubSpot, the people that do CRM software are renowned for having really, really strong culture in the organization. And it's very, very heavily based on their values. We'll talk about values later on. But they talk about building two products. They build a software product for their customers, and they build another product for their employees, their culture. That's how deliberate they are. They have very, very clear values in their organization, which means that everybody knows what's expected of them and what they can expect of the organization. So things like we solve for the customer We want to be remarkably transparent. There's the openness and honesty piece coming out. We lean towards long-term impact. So yeah, it's great to get stuff done now, but actually what's in the longer term? And then what's really interesting is they say this, we don't just believe in these values. We bet on them. We recruit, we reward, and we release people based on these values. Equally, Southwest, we've all seen the videos of the funny safety announcements on Southwest Airlines. That is a core part of their culture. You know, the the values that they have drive that. The values that they have 
where they, where they go out and take those values out on cultural blitzes, where they tie them into recognition, where they prioritize their values and their purpose and their hiring and their performance management, and in everything else they do, means that that organization has a very, very strong culture, which results from a business perspective in low turnover, few layoffs through COVID, 44 consecutive years of profitability, which in the airline industry is mental, you know, number one, lowest number of customer complaints. So you can start to see that when you start to focus on your people, they'll start to focus on your customers. Flip side of that coin, let's look at Theranos, the crowd recently where the CEO got jailed because the device that she said she had, you know, she was the youngest self-made billionaire in the world. And she created that device where through a pin prick of blood, we could test for all sorts of diseases and, and, and complaints. And it was all a lie. It was a house of cards built on nothing. So when you think about bad culture, that was everything was hidden and secrets and nobody had maybe the, the psychological safety to speak up and say, actually, this isn't right. What we're doing isn't right. When you look at people like, you know, the banking scandals, you know, back to AIB and Bank of Ireland and lots of banks all around the world, you know, with things like tracker mortgage scandals and insurance mis-selling and all that kind of stuff that resulted in fines and loss of trust and, and all those types of things. What was the issue there? Well, again, you know, partly the culture of the organization, people not sticking up their hand, people not necessarily doing the right thing, people not holding each other and themselves to account for the values of the organization. So probably there's a lot in there because you're right, it is like a billion dollar question, what is culture? But hopefully that goes some way to perhaps explaining certainly what we see as being kind of strong and aligned cultures and maybe those that don't have them. It does, Scott. Thank you. And I just one thing struck me as you were talking. A number of things struck me. One particular thing. So it's possible for an organisation to be doing, in inverted commas, bad things, things that we as communicators would frown upon, would like to discourage, but still be successful because that helps their strategy. Yeah. So culture is not a, not a thing that's there and in the ether for everybody. It has to be defined by an organisational strategy, and that could mean doing things that we as communicators disapprove of or don't like. And in which case, I guess, it's down to the individual to say, well, should I stay here or should I go? Absolutely. That's a very interesting insight to it. It's everybody's choice. You know, are my are the values of this organization, is the purpose of this organization aligned with my values and my purpose? And we know that lots of those new cohorts coming into the working world now, that's really important to them. So it makes this stuff even more important to have really clearly defined values and purpose and really live them because it's not enough just to have them on the wall. Scott, thank you so much um, for that. And yes, yeah, so interesting to hear you describe that. And uh, lovely as always to be to be chatting with you. And I was picking up as well what you were saying about this nature of being deliberate and actually actually is about creating deliberate actions, deliberate clarity, that values piece. And as you say, personal values, they vary. But there is that need for an organization to have a deliberate intent to adopt those. Now, in your experience, when we're thinking about, obviously, we obviously talk about organizational culture, top down, bottom up. And we always talk about how, if you're thinking about those deliberate pieces are driven by the management. I guess in your experience, how much of that, picking up on that, how much of the organizational culture do you think is top down 
as in driven by the leaders. So they're there saying, this is our values. This is the deliberate nature we're going to take it. And we're going to role model that versus how much is bottom up. So as you went back to the beginning, when you talked about the lily pad, where there's this amazing organism and mechanism that sits beneath that, how, which could unleash a lot of success, I, I would assume, how much of that do you think is bottom up or therefore shaped by employees? And perhaps as an addendum to that question as well is, which is better? Does it really so matter? I, you know, for me, the shaping of the culture, that deliberateness, if that's a word, that has to come from the top of the organization. It has to come from the, the CEO. It has to come from his or her senior management team because they're the ones ultimately that know where they want the organization to go or go your strategy. They're the ones that then therefore have to shape the culture that you need to get there. So if you're trying to do, if you're trying to pivot your organization and it's 150 years old and you're trying to pivot into new markets, for example, what might you want your culture to be? Well, you might want it to be innovative. You might want it to be fail fast. You might want it to be those types of things. And organizations don't maybe necessarily the people within might not like those things. If you just went to the organization and said, well, what do you think we should do? They might say, keep doing what we've always been doing because that's easy and we've kept doing it and I can do that and it's then it's not any hassle. But what needs to happen is we need fundamental change in our organization. So that agenda then being set by the top of the organization, make sure that we've got a very, very clear, and look, we all use, and people listening to this podcast all use that term North Star all the time, that we have a very, very, as an organization, have a very clear North Star, a very clear purpose, very clear strategy, and very clear culture as to how we're going to get there. So the direction needs to be set by the senior team, by the top, if you will. However, the culture needs to be owned by everybody. So if I take an example, let's let's talk about values. Let's talk about the organizational values, for example. Often, the senior team will go away to a country club for an overnight you know, day out, and they'll come up with values, and they'll come back to the organization, and they'll say, ta-da, we've got new values. Please now do the values, people. Make it happen. The worst thing in the world. Should they be starting that discussion? Yes, of course they should be. But then what should they be doing? Going out to the organization and saying, this is what we think. What's getting in the way of us achieving this today? What might our behaviors look like? How can we support you in bringing these to life? Or actually, are we getting in the way? Back to my innovation example, if we talk about having a, a value of innovation and people in the organization say, well, that's all well and good, but we've got such red tape and we're so heavily, heavily regulated and we're so risk averse that actually every single idea that anybody has ever put forward gets ignored or thrown in the bin or we never hear from you again. So then there's a role for that senior team to say, well, OK, what is it we need to do next? I think in that example of taking those values and then getting feedback from through the organization as well, Peter Senge, the American author, has a quote that I love and I use all the time. People don't resist change. They resist being changed. So if you're doing change to me, I'm going to resist it. If you involve me in the change of our culture, then I'm more likely to want to come on the bus with you. And in asking those questions and taking that feedback on board, of course, then that starts to build trust, starts to build psychological safety, starts to then allow people to speak freely, to hold each other to account for those values, to hold themselves to account for those values, and say to the say to the organization, okay, hang on a minute in the next town hall, Mr. Mr. CEO, Mrs. CEO, you talk about innovation, yet you never let us do anything. Can you please talk about that? And that type of challenge being okay. So 
for me, very much. You know, could I put a number on it? Is it 20% top, 80% bottom, 30, 70, 50, 50? It depends from organization to organization in terms of where your culture is coming from, where it wants to go and what it looks like today, what your as culture is. Can I just pick up on that? Because I think it's so interesting to say is it is that involvement piece, as you say, and, it, and it's so important. And we always know as well when we're trying to create those values, the living of those values, because it's always about the visible and the invisible, as you say, comes down to the behavior of everyone. And we see, I think you touched upon it earlier as now, we see this, this rise of what um, perhaps in the in the social world or in discussion on platforms is the rise of toxic culture and how I won't work for a toxic culture or organisation. And saying how you think it should be built, you know, it's that, that the agenda, the involvement is really, really clear to having that adopted because at the end of the day, it, it comes more about our actions alongside the words. But do you think, though, this is one of the things I've been thinking about, we're so, feel so, I guess, hurried or needing as organisations to be successful, to have clear purpose and values, that we're running at it to get it out there and not investing enough time in how we're adopting it. Therefore, that is seeing the rise of the toxic culture or what you say and what you do are therefore not aligned. Do you see that in the things or the clients that you're talking to is perhaps sometimes we need to go back a step, but we're such a rush to get somewhere that we miss all the critical points in the middle? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, to your point there about toxic cultures, Karen Jones, who we work with from Denison Consulting, we use their um, their organizational culture diagnostic tool. And she says one of her definitions of culture is your culture is defined by the worst behavior you're willing to accept. It's the lack of action from an organization that creates toxic culture, because when you talk about we, you know, you have a culture of respecting each other. When somebody disrespects somebody in a team meeting and somebody doesn't say, actually, you know what, that's probably not what we stand for in the organization. So let's just stop there, have the conversation again. Or somebody in the senior leadership team has been disrespectful in an open forum and the CEO doesn't take them aside. Then that's what causes the toxic culture because people aren't being held to account for the values that we've said are important, that we hold dear and that, you know what, I'm out there being respectful every day. Jimmy or Sarah or Billy or Bob aren't being respectful and what's happening to them? Well, absolutely nothing. So what's the point? And therefore, you start to get into that toxic culture space. We often say to clients, when we work on values projects, when we work on, so we'll work with clients to help them identify a culture ambitions. Where do you want to be? We'll then use a diagnostic to find out where they are today, and then we'll work with them to get from one to the other. And we'll often say to them, diagnosing your culture, defining a new culture, defining your values, your purpose, your, your behaviors, all of that, that gets you to day zero. So if you think this is hard work, Good luck, because the hard work starts at day zero when you've got that. All, you, all you've done is build a really strong foundation. In terms of building the building, that starts on day one, and that's where the hard work starts. So it's about how you bring that to life, how you hold people to account, what internal comms looks like in terms of driving it. That's the key stuff. I would like to chip in, Scott, and just talk about change a little bit, because I thought what you mentioned there with the Peter Senge quote, people don't resist change, they resist being changed. That's really opposite. I spend my days looking at the external forces driving change in our workplaces and how we work. And as you know, that has been 
tipped on its head since COVID, unleashing the great resignation, the big debates around the future wear of work, etc. And I'm curious what your impression is on how that changing nature of work is impacting organisational cultures, because something that I see very regularly actually is we've got all of these changes and shifts coming down the pipe at us and it's more often than not quite overwhelming and I see a lot of change resistance coming from the C-suite so I wonder how that plays out as it sort of permeates into and through and across the organisational cultures that you see. I love the fact that you've just said organisational cultures because when we talk about organisational culture there isn't just one there are hundreds of cultures in a big organisation. One overriding, arch, overarching culture and then loads of subcultures within. And those subcultures will be driven by the types of work we do, whether on night shift, what kind of leader we have, all that stuff. So that's probably one point worth picking up on. Back to the actual question around the changing world of work, around remote, and around hybrid and all that stuff. We know it was the world's biggest social experiment and we had a week and a half of notice that it was happening and we were going to be at home. Now, I think what that did was amplify not just culture, but amplified leadership capability or lack of capability. It amplified engagement or lack of engagement. It basically acted as it it turned up the volume, whether your your culture, your, your engagement levels, your leadership, your communications was good or bad. It basically made it either much better or much worse. And I think that's the biggest challenge. Has it impacted the culture and organizations? It absolutely has impacted them massively. You know, when we talk about rituals, for example, a lot of those pre-COVID rituals, the traditional things we always did are gone. The face-to-face team meetings, the cups of coffee, the chat, the walk around the block, the cake for a birthday, the, you know, going for a pint after Friday after work. You know, I know that's frowned upon these days, but all of those little things, the how we worked together have changed dramatically. So we need to invent new rituals. We need to invent new ways that we bring our culture to life. So when we talk about trust, if we have that as one of our core values, well, what does trust look like in the world of hybrid? Does trust look like a three-day, two-day hybrid model? I don't think it does. Does trust look like my boss saying, well, you know, I, 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 I know that other teams are saying that you can do three days, two days, but actually I think it's probably best for everyone if we're all in here all the time. Do you not think? A reflection on their own levels of trust or their levels of inability to manage their team, to manage a team and be very, very focused on the outcomes and not on the outputs. So the bottom line is we are not going back to the old ways of working. We are not going back to the pre-COVID ways of working, whatever this ends up looking like, and we just don't know because no one's written the playbook on post-COVID global pandemic, you know, working. Nobody's written that. We're not going back there. So what we've got now is a massive opportunity for organisations to basically go back to day zero and think about, well, what is the culture that we want to have and how do we then build that in this context and that idea of context to your point cat is so important because we've got all these forces on us all the time whether they be within our workplace or like covid external to our workplace but i think it's a massive opportunity to start to just lay out a plan for how in this new world of work and actually sorry i'm going to take that back because i'm sick of calling it that and it actually makes me cringe how we're going to work going forward 
because it's just work now. It's not the future of work. It's not hybrid work. It's not pandemic work. It's not. It's just work. And we just do some of it at work in an office or we do some of it somewhere else or we do some of it with teams or we meet up in a, a co-working space. But thinking about how we do that, how we make that really effective, that's very, very important. And of course, it's a key part of, of employer brand. You talked about the great resignation there. We've had so many bleeding greats, you know, great resignation. Great, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sick of them as well. We like to give things names. And I actually think, again, it's just a reflection on organizations' poor management of things like culture, leadership, engagement, trust. That's what's driving a lot of this. But I think what this is now is a massive opportunity for organizations, if they're willing to go on the journey, to rebuild their cultures, which has a massive impact on their employer brand, which has a massive impact on their ability to attract and then retain amazing people. And that's what organizations are really struggling with at the moment. So just to pull that apart a tiny bit further, what impact do you think it has on organisational cultures when leaders either try to deny or deflect the new work reality or overtly control the new work reality? I think it massively erodes trust with people in the organisation. You're not letting us do this because you don't trust us to get the work done because you want to see us sitting in front of you like, you know, Charles Dickens, and or in a, in a workhouse, and and that's what you want to see. So I, I think the, the the massive impact is a trust issue. I think the outcome of that is people just walking because you know there's jobs where people are saying, well, you can work fully remotely, you can work part time, you can do whatever. One of our clients, big insurance company, and, and organ, you know those types of organisations would not be known for their contemporary view on HR and how to how to work with their people. Their policy for hybrid working is. Have a chat with your team and find out what works best for your team and then do that. There's no 60-40. There's no three days, two days. There's none of that. There's just you work out with your team what works best if we're to achieve what we need to achieve for our customers and you're to achieve what you need to achieve as a team and a business unit. And that's working tremendously well. It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, really, you know, the responsibility lies with leaders and managers to communicate in such a crystal clear and compelling and engaging fashion that the role has almost become that of kind of leading orator you know to convince others of one's ideas and to influence the change one seeks to make and I think that therein lies the challenge one is this task of being brave enough to have convictions on what could be easily construed as quite contentious issues, particularly when we're heavily ensconced now in culture wars, left, right and centre, and then also to seed control and to get back to what it always should have been from the get-go, which was a team effort, a team kind of decentralised decision-making process. And I think those two challenges are pretty overwhelming for any leader who's grown up and matured in a landscape of command and control and centralised organising. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think when you're coming from that, you know, you think about it. So it was, we were only discussing this at dinner uh, over the weekend with my parents and just saying, you know, you guys are, well, you're now retired, but you'd be in that baby boomer. And my dad was like, 
I just, I'm not sure I could do it. I'm not sure I could do the whole remote working thing and having people all around the place and that, because I've always come from that place of people just came to work and I just went to work and that was doing work, was actually going to an office building. So it must be incredibly difficult for them. Now, what I think what's really interesting is that we've been chatting to a lot of clients about this recently is that we, I say we, you know, people that work in and around internal comms tend to always put responsibility for that change at the door of the leader. You need to change to your point, Cat. You need to be a better orator. You need to be more clear. You need to have the skills. You need to have this. You need to have the, the. There's a responsibility on people in the organization as well to be able to do the work, to be able to step up, to be able to take accountability, to be able to be empowered, take that, take that empowerment and be accountable. So there are two sides to that coin as well. And I think it's we we lump stuff at the doors of leaders. And actually, we've got to remember that there's a responsibility on people in an organisation as well. Which is a fascinating challenge, isn't it? Because we seem to now live in a social culture where uh, attributing blame is far, far easier than it is to share responsibility. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? What we're finding now is that, you know, people will say things in, in, in the world of social where, you know, they wouldn't say it to your face. And, you know, they're, they're happy to say it out in the world of Twitter, but they would never say it to their boss. And again, you know, you know that's, that comes back to that point about there being a responsibility on people in organisations on this change journey as well. You know, people don't like change. People don't mind change. They just don't like being changed. Well, get on the bus then and come with us on the journey. Scott, le- leading on from that, if we could look now a little bit at the internal communication implications of, of what we discussed so far, because obviously the majority of people listening to this will have an interest, at least in, in internal communication. And as you were talking, I think a number of things struck me. First of all, you talked about the, obviously the importance of in involving people in change. I guess that may be an opportunity for communication. You talked about the new rituals that organisations need to think about because of the way we work now and the new playbook. And so I guess from your perspective and what you've seen, what do you think the role of internal communicators is when it comes to fashioning the culture that best works for an organisation. And I guess, to take the analogy you started with, what's the role of the communicator under the lily pad? How can they help? You know, for me, it's probably probably the first place that internal communications teams in organisations can help, or even just an internal communicator in a smaller organisation or somebody with a passion for it, from a language perspective, is help organisations to be a little bit more human. To be involved earlier, you know, we talk about strategy, we talk about purpose, we talk about values and behaviours, we talk about corporate narrative. How do we bring the organisational journey to life through story? That's what internal communicators do and can do. And that's fundamentally important. We talk to, when we're talking to organisations about doing corporate narrative, you know, one of my opening lines is strategy is really boring. I mean, really boring for the average person. It's a bit like an HR policy. We know we need to have them, but we hope to God we never have to actually read one because it's just not written for the average employee in an organization. So give me the infograph. Give me something that's written in language that I can cling on to, that I can get into, that brings it to life, that's a little bit more human, a bit more perhaps chatty. I don't like the term informal. I like the word human. So I think that's the first thing. Get in early and be involved in that strategizing phase. You know, go and chat to the head of strategy and say, God, I'd love to bring some language to help you land your strategy in a way that means it's going to absolutely, you know, be rolled out in the way that you envisage it being rolled out. Second one, to coin a term that Anth Burroughs, my former boss, who Dom, you of course know, said all the time is link and label term that I use with clients all the time. How can you use the channels that you have at your disposal 
to really hold up the important elements of your culture, to really hold up what living our values truly looks like, what elements of our strategy coming to life really look like. And it can be as simple as things like, I remember back in AIB, back in 2015, 2016 on the intranet, if we put up an intranet story, it had our values roundel on there. And if every story was linked to a value, so that particular value would be lit up in the values roundel. Here's a great example of being one team. Here's a great example of living with courage. And likewise, with strategy, we had four strategy pillars. This story around customer or this story around risk or this story around whatever is related to one specifically of those strategy pillars. How are you linking and labeling those elements for people? Through things like recognition, stories of your purpose, stories of success, and actually really importantly, stories of failure. So here's where something went horribly wrong and what happened after. Nobody died. Nothing fell to pieces. What we did was we learned from that fail, which I remember I remember Denise Black, who's now working up in, up in Northern Ireland for, uh, for women in business. She says, fail is an acronym, first attempt in learning. So what was, our, what was our first attempt in learning? Well, it was these other things that we did before we got to the brilliant place that we wanted to be back to that innovation example that I gave earlier on. And I think then to Kat's point earlier on, there is a piece around upskilling leaders of giving them the tools, of giving them the confidence, the skills, the support, the mentoring to be able to be really amazing because they are the glue that holds an organization together. You know, I say to Again, clients all the time from their middle management layer, they're the ones that can translate and contextualize your very broad organizational strategic messages into something that really resonates with their team. Not only because they understand the work that they do or what it is they have to achieve, but I know that Dom's dog is sick or, you know, Kat's parents are stuck in Mumbai because their flight home from their holiday was cancelled or whatever it might be. But what's going on for our teams, we know that as leaders. So we know then how best to land some of those messages. So it'd be those three things, be involved in strategizing, link and label, and then support the upskill leaders. And just picking up on that, I mean, fantastic three things to bear in mind there. And of course, also, one of the things we've been talking about in these podcasts is the changing nature of the internal communication role. And I guess in some ways that's been accelerated by all the discussions about AI and other things like that. And all the things you've talked about there are about things that AI can't do, really, or very easily. It's about how we can help humanise things. I love that word as well. That's a, a really strong marker, I think, in how we can develop our role as internal communicators. For sure. And, you know, I, it, it's interesting, the whole chat GPT thing, you know, people, you know, holding up a, you know, a cross to chat GPT, get away from my job. Actually, it can be really helpful in just knocking out a first draft of something. We've all sat down with, a, you know, at a keyboard or with a pen and a bit of paper to try and bash out a first draft of something. And actually, you just look, you're just looking for a bit of inspiration. Tell me eight things that, you know, how internal communications can really help to drive values rollout in an organization. And it'll do it for you. And will it get it 100% right? No, of course it won't. Will it get 20% right? Maybe it will. What's it given you? A starting point, and it's taken away a blank page. So actually, I think there's something in that for all of us yeah. to look at and say that we're not, we're not talking about use it to create all your comms, but actually use it to take away the blank page, because that's often the, the hardest hurdles to get over. And it means we can do something really powerful to help leaders achieve their goals, which gives us more more power to our elbow, if you like, as well. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you get to do the more important stuff. Oh, Scott, as we, we come to the end, of the, we've talked about so much. And um, I do agree that the humanizing, there's nothing I deliberate more on than a blank page. I have spent 
probably hours in my life with a blank page in front of me. And I would also like to say that I have knocked up a lot of what was the fail acronyms in my career, uh, first attempt at learning. And I think it's... um all of it has gone towards the greater good in, in, in my career. But as, our, as we've said, we've talked about so many tips and so many things in there. But now I'm going to ask you just, just for the one, just now let's nail it down to that one when we're talking about this landscape that we're in with many internal communicators trying to help influence and help those organisations create, inspire, structure those cultures, as you quite rightly say. So what is the one thing you would like internal communicators who are in the in the melee of doing all this work to Sorry, take from I this discussion. At the end of my podcast as well, and people always say three things and I'm like, no, just I was the brief not clear. So I'm gonna promise I'm just gonna I'm just gonna just answer to I'm just gonna tell you one thing. <laughs> and that one thing I think for internal communicators to take away from this is that you don't change culture. So your CEO will come to you and say, you need to come and help me change the culture of the organization. You don't change the culture in an organization because culture is an output or a byproduct of the things that you do of those values and rituals of them being lived. So what you can do as an internal communicator is help to really shine a light on those things. Every time you tell a story about your values, every time you tell a story about your purpose, every time you hold up somebody on a pedestal for being amazing and you recognize them through your intranet or work vivo or whatever it is you're using, that you're doing that. And that little thing that you've just done there, that micro change, that micro action you've taken, when all of those are rolled up, that is what's going to help to change your culture. Oh, brilliant, Scott. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. And there's so much for everyone to take away from, from being deliberate to thinking about how leaders establish it, to thinking about involvement, to thinking about language and humanising things, and to think about some of those challenges in perhaps that, that external world as well. And actually that point around taking accountability as people on that journey as well. And um, I think there's a lot for our listeners to take away. So Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been lovely chatting with you. And um, as always, listeners, tune in for the next episode. Thanks, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.